For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we've been studying the book of Daniel. We've been studying these prophecies written down over 2,500 years ago. A collection of prophecies that I've repeatedly referred to in this series as the greatest collection of prophecies in the history of the human race. I said we're going to spend several weeks going through these prophecies, and this is our third week. Tonight we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 7. These, these were written down by a guy named Daniel. They've been in, in the Bible ever since. And a lot of scholars think that Daniel 7 is actually the most important chapter in Daniel, in his predictive prophecies. So this is pretty significant. In case you've missed the last couple of weeks, you missed a lot, and I'm going to try to catch you up to speed, but I really urge you to go online and to listen to the MP3s from the past two weeks. You can get those on the Xenos website. We have an app where you can get them even easier. But we've been looking at visions that Daniel had. And in Daniel chapter 2, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that he had a vision interpreting this dream of a giant statue in Daniel chapter 2. And we saw that this statue represented a series of empires that would lead right up to the end of human history. The first one we saw was Babylon. That was the empire in control when Daniel got this vision. The next one is the Media Persian Empire. They would be the empire that would conquer Babylon and where Daniel would spend his final couple years of his life living under the Medo-Persian Empire. After 200 years, they would yield to mighty Greece. And after Greece held control for 150 to 200 years, they would fall back and Rome would rise to the fore. We also saw, though, that these legs of iron on this statue, as you move down into the feet, we saw a change takes place. And we argued that there's a gap between Rome and the final kingdom that this predicts. We argued that the Roman Empire would fall, would splinter into many nations. But in the very end of human history, nations descended from Rome would reunite in a shaky coalition that would become more powerful than any nation in the world. And we called that Rome II. And that's all from Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 8, we said Bible prophecy is like a tapestry where it all interweaves together. And as we step back and see the big picture, that's what really starts to be impressive. We see correlation in Daniel chapter 8 that focuses in on just two of these kingdoms from Daniel chapter 2. The first one we saw Daniel... Daniel saw this vision of this ram with these two horns. And we said that that ram with the two horns represents the Medo and the Persian Empire. They were dominant for a time. But then along came a ram with a single horn, like a unicorn ram. And that ram destroyed the, the Medo-Persian Empire and it said explicitly, this kingdom is Greece. Well, we saw that it predicts the, the, the progression of the Greek empire after the death of Alexander the Great. And we saw that that one horn was broken off and in its place sprouted up four horns, which represented the four divisions of the Greek empire we know from history. We also saw that after a time, one horn that Daniel calls the small horn comes out of one of the offshoots of that Greek empire. And this small horn... We saw last week in that lengthy history lesson that this small horn is a very important ruler to sprout out of the Seleucid Empire, an offshoot of Greece. 
a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, who launched the, most, the fiercest persecution that Jesus had ever seen up until that time. Very bad, this is where we get the holiday of Hanukkah from, is at the end of this conflict with Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, I said last week these are important for two reasons. One, these are important fulfilled prophecies. And so we see these examples of Bible prophecies that for Daniel were still future, but for us, they're historical. But as people looking back, we can see in hindsight that what he predicted is exactly what happened. But also, these are not just a matter of historical concern, but I said that these serve as types of things that are still to happen in the future. And so these give us a preview of the end times, what happened there with Antiochus and this persecution of the people of God. These are like what is going to happen in the future. And I threw this word types out there at the end of last week, and I didn't really have time to explain it. So I wanted to start this week with explaining what is a type, because that's an important concept in Bible prophecy. The word type, it comes from ancient coin-making procedures. The Greek word is tupos. It's the mark that's left when something gets hit. And let's say you want to make a coin like this owl coin. This is a a 4th century BC coin found down in Egypt, a tetradrachma. If you wanted to make a coin like this, you'd need a, a piece of metal, and you would need to carve a mold, like the mold that was discovered that made this coin. And so what you do, you know, you've got your type here, and then you, 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 you take your metal and, and you place your mold on it and you go, boom, and you whack the thing into the coin and it leaves its imprint. And so you have the type and you have the anti-type. Now, the biblical writers seized on this concept because it's, it's got relevance for Bible prophecy. Well, what happens in Bible prophecy is you have, God knows the end, right? He knows what's coming. And so sometimes it's almost like he's got this mold, and sometimes he'll just go around whacking stuff, and, and that thing that it, it produces has some correspondence with something that is yet future. The most common type in Bible prophecy is types of Christ. You see all these pictures, God going all around the Old Testament, whacking stuff with these molds that kind of looked like Jesus. So for example... In the Old Testament, God came up with this thing called the tabernacle. It was this tent they would set up, and God's presence would symbolically dwell there. Well, then we come to John chapter 1 in the New Testament, and it says that Jesus, in Jesus Christ, God came down, and he put on flesh, and he tabernacled among us. And so the tabernacle in the Old Testament, this tent that had the presence of God symbolically there, that was a picture of what God would do in Jesus Christ, where he would come and he would dwell in human, like the, like the body was his tent that he, he walked around in for 33 years. So, you know, it's almost like you got your mold and, you know, he sets it down and he's like, boom! And you kind of pe- you peel the metal out of there and you're like, okay, I can see this mold, here's Jesus, and I can kind of see a resemblance there with the tabernacle. Again, uh, for example, the Day of Atonement sacrifice. There's this one day where this one sacrifice would be offered to cover the sins of all the people. Then we get to Hebrews chapter 9, and we see an explicit linkage between that sacrifice to cover the sins of all the people and the, the real sacrifice that it pointed to, which was Jesus Christ offering himself. 
once for all time. And that one didn't need to be offered again, unlike this day of atonement sacrifice. And so you see these pictures where God sets his mold down, he whacks it, and he pulls it out, and then you can see a resemblance in some sense to Jesus Christ. All right, so types of Christ are the most common. You see them all over the place. And you see them where scripture identifies them. And I think we should restrict, with, to call something a type, we should, we, should only, we should say that for things that scripture says is a type. The end times is the other most common set of templates, the, the most common types in the Bible. And when we come to Antiochus Epiphanes, it's like God has this model of what the future is going to look like, and he, he makes one here in Antiochus Epiphanes. He shows there's some things about what this guy's like that's going to be similar to another future evil ruler of the end times. And last week I said that this ruler, he will rise from the final empire in the vision. He will demand to be worshipped as God. He will desecrate a rebuilt Jewish temple. Yes, this ruler, he lives at a time when the Jewish people have been regathered into their land and they've rebuilt their temple. They have a functioning temple that he desecrates. He will persecute believers like never before, just like Antiochus Epiphanes did. And he will be broken in the end, defeated by God. Of course, in this case, it'll be the end of human history, this final world ruler. And in case you haven't guessed it, this world ruler... That Antiochus, that we studied last week, prefigures that he's a type of, is none other than the Antichrist. So we want to talk about the Antichrist tonight. Daniel chapter 7, this is who it really focuses on. This is the real new information that we get in this chapter. He's mentioned frequently in scripture, over a hundred different passages talk about the Antichrist. So we're going to, have, we're going to run across him repeatedly if you read your Bible. He's also mentioned frequently in pop culture, movies, books, music. You can get on Wikipedia and see a list of 60 different pop culture references in movies, books, and, and, and literature and music. Everything from Marilyn Manson's album, Antichrist Superstar, <laughs> Santa's Sleigh, the movie, where Santa Claus is the Antichrist. <laughs> Uh, there's the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comic that has Harry Potter as the Antichrist. <laughs> and, of course, South Park, one of multiple episodes involving the Antichrist, where the Antichrist is born to the woodland creatures in a manger. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that is very of, of great interest in pop culture. Jesus warned there's going to be a lot of false information about this guy. He said, beware, Matthew 24, about all the different rumors, all the false information. I don't want you guys to be taken in when this comes along. And when you look at our world today, frankly, it's kind of a scary place. There are very powerful rulers of nations and organizations that have very powerful weapons. Some of them are unpredictable, others just seem plain crazy, and maybe some of us lie awake at night wondering what's going to happen. What is this world's coming to? We see the potential for, for evil men or women to rise to power, and we wonder what's going to happen. When we read our Bibles, we see what God says about this ruler, 
and how this ruler will come to an end, what God is going to do about it. So there's a great deal of comfort we can take from studying these passages as well. So let's read Daniel 7, another vision from Daniel. He says, it was the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, 553 BC, just a couple years earlier than last week's vision we read from Daniel chapter 8. And Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. So he wrote it down. You ever wake up from a dream and you can't remember what happened? Daniel didn't have that problem because he wrote it down. He said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. And then four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. So he just watches these beasts coming out of the water toward him. Of course, what these beasts represent... Daniel does not leave us to our imagination. I keep saying this, Bible prophecy, if you're confused about what it means, just keep reading. It usually tells you. And so later, after he relates his dream, he says this, I approached one of these angels he saw standing beside the throne in his vision, and I asked him what it all meant. And he explained it to me like this, these four huge beasts represent four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. Isn't that interesting? Four kingdoms. Where have we seen that before? <gasps> Daniel chapter 2. The four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece Empire, Rome, and then an extension of Rome, a revived, a reunited Rome in the last days. I wonder if the four kingdoms of Daniel 7 have anything to do with the four different areas of this statue in Daniel chapter 2. I bet they do, because it's Bible prophecy and it's correlated. <laughs> The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. So this lion. Roar. What's this one? Well, if it correlates with Daniel 2, I would expect this to be Babylon because that's explicitly what Daniel 2 says the first kingdom is. Also, Babylon is compared to a lion repeatedly in, in Biblical authors like Jeremiah who are writing around the time of the exile. Also, the Ishtar Gate that I showed you from Babylon a couple of weeks ago, that great gate they've excavated, has lions all over it. Not to mention correlation with Daniel 2. I'm just going to stick this up in the Babylon row. He goes on, he says, Then I saw a second beast, and it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. So we got this bear growl. <laughs> I'm going to put that in the Medo-Persian Empire. For one, it says one side, it was rearing up on one side or one side was lifted higher than the other. Remember the ram we saw last week where the one horn came in second, but it was longer than the other. Remember how we said the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medes came up first, but then the Persians came up later and more powerful, subsumed it and took over more territory. So we got this two theme. The one is kind of bigger, higher, longer than the other one. Also, Daniel 8.20, if we correlate it with last week's vision, it explicitly says that ram is the Medo-Persian Empire. So what are the three ribs in its mouth? A lot of people think these are the three major conquests that the Persians took to grow their territory. They conquered Lydia, which is Turkey. They conquered Babylon, which is the Babylon we're talking about here, and then they, they pushed their way down in toward Egypt as well. 
Those are, that's probably what it's talking about. After that, I looked, and another beast comes out of the sea. This one looked like a leopard, except it was a little different. On its back, it had four wings, like those of a bird. And the beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. So a four-headed, four-winged leopard might have looked something like this. What could this one be talking about? Oh, I don't know. If we look at Daniel 2 and Daniel chapter 8 and history, what came after the Medo-Persian Empire? Wasn't it Greece? Do you remember last week how the one horn of Alexander broke off and what sprung up in its place? Four horns, the four divisions of the Greek Empire. What does this guy have? Four heads, four wings. Leopard speed. Remember how fast that goat was traveling across the land? Alexander the Great conquered from, from Greece to India down to Egypt with such speed. He never lost a battle. And of course, Daniel 8.21 says that third kingdom is Greece. So, biblical prophecy for the win once again. No... Trying to, you know, get, I mean, this is just clear, straightforward reading and correlation of the prophecies. What about the fourth one? I think you can guess where it's going. He says, after that, in my vision at night, I looked and there was before me a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. Now, where have we seen iron before? Do you remember that statue? The legs were made out of iron. And in, like, in one verse, it said six different times in Daniel 2 about how iron breaks and tramples and crushes everything, and it tramples and crushes and breaks. And so here we've got a fourth beast. It doesn't really correspond to any known beast. It's very powerful, trampling everything, terrifying iron teeth. And we'll get a little more details here as well. We're going to call this Rome because of the correlation with Daniel chapter 2, because of the, the repeating of iron. For all the reasons we thought it was Rome in Daniel 2, we think it's Rome now as well. But Daniel goes on. He says this one was different from all the former beasts. It had 10 horns. Hmm. You can see the 10 horns here on our fictional beast that I stole from the Action Bible. <laughs> 10 horns. Is this a fifth kingdom? The fourth kingdom here is Rome. Is this a fifth kingdom that he's predicting? Is it maybe a fifth that's kind of like the fourth and kind of comes out of the fourth like we saw back in Daniel chapter 2? A reunited Rome could be, could be. For one, ancient Rome had one king, not 10. This says there are 10 kings. And it comes out of those, and something else comes out of those 10. 10 kings. Also, in Daniel 2, there was a difference between the legs and then the feet and the toes. And in fact, remember at the time I said, the toes, there's 10 of them. And here we've got 10 horns, which I'm gonna, we're going to read in a little bit. These are 10 kings. These are 10 rulers that come out 
of this revived empire. Yeah, the other thing is this leads right up to the return of Christ in the kingdom of God. Just like in chapter two, that big rock hit the foot of the statue. Here, we're gonna see the coming of Jesus Christ on the clouds and the setting up of his kingdom and the putting an end to evil once and for all. That didn't happen when the Roman Empire fell. And so for a lot of reasons that I've said in, in, in Daniel 2 as well as here, what I think is happening here is you have a distinction between, in this fourth beast, between the beast itself, which was Rome, and then the outgrowth of that, the reuniting, is the ten horns. In other words, Rome, Rome 2, in this beast. And so really, this is just a restatement of the five empires from Daniel chapter 2. But what this is going to do is it's going to focus in on the last one. And it's going to focus on a ruler that comes out of that final empire. Just like in Daniel 8, we saw a ruler come out of the Greek empire. In Daniel 7, we're going to see a ruler come out of this revived Roman empire, this end times Roman empire. And that's what Daniel goes on to narrate. While I was thinking about the horns, there's something about those horns that were intriguing to Daniel. And it was just then that all of a sudden, boop, there's another horn, a little one, which came up among them. Now, last week was a small horn. This week's a little horn. It's a little different, but similar. The one is a type of the other. A little horn came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And so in the process of coming up, it has to yank three other ones out. Imagine that's painful to yank a horn out. I've never done it myself. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. This isn't just any normal horn. This is a horn, Daniel said, that had eyes and a mouth. You can see it's sort of morphing here. This is a dream. Dreams can be crazy. And as I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat glowing with unapproachable light, garments as white as wool. There's a court in session now. The court was seated and the books were opened. And so the Ancient of Days takes his seat. This little horn is ushered into his presence. And it says, I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. He couldn't believe what this, the, braggart, the, the, the bragging of this horn in front of the Ancient of Days. Didn't last too long, though. I kept looking until the beast was slain. Right. As we see the end of the little horn and the beast attached to him. Boom. So what does it mean? We've got this, these beasts coming out of the sea. We have a, it centers in on this little horn. Well, we want to take a look at this. This little horn. He says, I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast and the meaning of the ten horns that came upon its head and the other horn which came up. And so he's still talking to this angel and getting this explanation. What is the angel going to say? He says, 
Daniel, that fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. There's Rome. But as for the 10 horns, out of this kingdom, 10 kings will rise. It's like you've got this, this beast and then you've got these horns arising out of it. It's like subsequent. It's like the beast comes out of the water and then the horns come out of the beast. That's that gap between the Rome and the reunited Rome. There you go, 10 horns will arise out of this kingdom and another will arise after them. So after the 10 come out, another one comes out after that. Right there, our little horn. And he will be different from the previous ones and he will subdue three kings. And so yanking out three horns, somehow in his rise to power, he takes out three of these rulers, three of these kings. Doesn't say how, just says that's what happens. He will speak out against the most high. He'll wear down the saints of the highest one. He'll intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. We'll talk about what that means. But the court will sit for judgment. That's the ancient of days. His dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. So he's quickly dispatched when the time comes. And so we want to talk about this figure, the Antichrist, this final world ruler. What can we learn about the Antichrist from this passage as well as bringing in information from other passages? Well, we said he's from the reunited Roman Empire. He's not from Greece, like the guy in chapter 8. He's from the reunited Roman Empire, this end times coalition of nations descended from Rome. This is where this guy springs out of. He's a person who will rule the world. Yes, he will rule the world. Revelation 17 talks about these kings. He says the ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They'll be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. And then they will all agree to give him their power and authority. They'll say, it would be best if you just rule everything. Three of them are going to go down, says Daniel, when this decision is made. Maybe they're the dissenters. Happens sometimes in politics. You disagree, you get tossed out. You don't make it into the next, next round. He goes by many names, the Antichrist. You know, he's the Antichrist in 1 John 2, the beast here and other places, a little horn, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, the prince who is to come. One point here is that some people try to make Antichrist some abstract principle of evil. The Bible talks about him like he's a person, not just a symbol for abstract evil, an actual ruler who will rule the world. A single ruler over the whole world. Is that crazy or what? Is that even possible? People have been trying to do it since the beginning of governments. Since the beginning of man, people have been trying to take over the world. Is it finally going to happen? Yeah, it is. I think this is not just possible, but very plausible given factors in our world today, factors such as globalization. Let me read a few quotes from the experts in this area. Alexander Wendt, poli-sci professor at The Ohio State University. Here's what he says in his article, Why a World State is Inevitable. He says, my guess is that a world state will emerge within 100 years. It would not even require a world government 
If by this we mean a unitary actor with one person at the top whose individual decisions are final. No, he says the EU is already not far from meeting these requirements on a regional level. Were a completed EU-like structure to be globalized, that would be a world state. Jorgen Randers, Norwegian climate studies professor, in his book, A Global Forecast for the Next 40 Years, he talks about the climate conditions that are going to push for globalization, for one world governance. He says, all this will mean bigger government in the decades ahead, a larger role for the state, higher taxes, a larger share of investments in the GDP. The prime example is the climate challenge. It's truly a global problem. The temperature will rise everywhere, irrespective of who is the source of the emissions. Yeah, just because country A cuts down their emissions, if country B doesn't do it, that could just be an opportunity for them to make some money. It's not like the, the climate there stays put. This spreads out over the entire globe. We're all connected when it comes to nature. Such truly global long-term problems are hard to solve if one restricts oneself to using the powers of the free market only. Yeah, it's going to take more intervention on this. I think that's just the solution people are going to come to as the environment runs out. Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Prize winning economist, former chief economist at the World Bank, Columbia professor, his book, Making Globalization Work. Look what he has to say. He says, we need international frameworks, international courts. As countries of the world become more closely integrated, they become more interdependent. Greater interdependence gives rise to a greater need for collective action to solve common problems. Such collective action is not only desirable, but necessary. Think about problems like terrorism. How are we going to solve terrorism if the terrorists just move to another country where this country has no jurisdiction? Climate problems, economic problems. Governments just move offshore. They move to the country that gives them the cheapest taxes. The governments are already international. Or, sorry, the, the businesses are already international. The governments are the ones that haven't caught up yet. As he goes on to say, economic globalization has outpaced political globalization. We have a chaotic, uncoordinated system of global governance without global government. There's a clear need for strong international institutions to deal with the challenges posed by economic globalization. Yet today, confidence in existing institutions is weak. It won't take long for those to get stronger. Some sort of a crisis, perhaps, some sort of an emergency, some sort of a disaster. You think about the Patriot Act. You know, today we look back and we're like, can you believe how they took our freedoms away? At the time, it passed, it passed the Senate 98 to 1. People were so scared by the World Trade Center attack, which is really nothing compared to what would happen if a nuclear weapon gets dropped, for example. Globalization. It sort of seems inevitable. I'm not saying I think this should happen. I'm just saying, can't you see how it's probably going to happen? Everything moving together? Antichrist is going to be right there at the center of that. God knew all this was coming. He rules the world for seven years. We learn this in a couple different places. We get a hint at it here in this passage, though. When he says they're given into his hand for time, times, and half a time, this three-and-a-half-year and, and seven-year number is very important in Bible prophecy. Time would be one year. Times would be two more years. And half a time would be another half year. Year, years, and half a year. Three-and-a-half years. In fact, in Revelation, we see... 
In one place, all a chapter apart, it says time, times, and half a time. And then it says 42 months, which is three and a half years. And then it says 1,260 days, which is three and a half years, the way they counted years, with a 360-day year. Daniel 9.27, which we'll study next time. He'll make a firm covenant with the many for one seven-year period. But in the middle of the seven, after three and a half years, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. He does something really terrible in the middle of the seven that causes, apparently, a war to break out over the whole world. But he rules the world for a time, seven years. Not a long time, but it's pretty good for ruling the world, something no one's ever done before. Antichrist. He's a powerful speaker. The mouth is uttering great boasts. He's known for his mouth, for his speaking. He's also got a propaganda minister with him that Revelation 13 calls the false prophet. That's going to make it easier to take the really obnoxious stuff that this Antichrist talks about. Revelation 13 talks about his arrogant words and blasphemies. This guy's going to be able to say stuff and you're like, I can't believe he said that. I can't believe he got away with that. And he's going to get away with it. And people are going to love it. Can you imagine? <laughs> Controls all commerce. The power to control what people buy and sell, it says, according to Revelation 13. He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. No one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. It's vague at that point. So, historically, this has never happened. That a single ruler has had the power to control everyone's spending in the world. To be able to say, you can buy and sell, you can't. It would have been impossible. How could that have happened? Some guy in a, in, a, in a throne room somewhere can control what somebody on the other side of the world does, can keep them from going down to the market with a couple of rabbits and trading them for some wheat. There's not, no way that could have happened. But in our day, this is not just possible, it's plausible. In fact, there are things that are pushing toward a cashless society. I mean, do you carry any cash at this point? I don't. Cash is annoying. Cash can get stolen. Electronic. That's where things are headed. Technology is here. RFID chips. You see this article from this past summer? This is CNET. A bunch of news organizations picked it up, though. Employees offered RFID chip implants. It's voluntary for now. Employees of Three Square Market, a vending machine technology company in River Falls, Wisconsin, won't have to worry about forgetting their employee ID cards at home anymore. Starting next month, a voluntary program will offer company employees the chance to get an RFID chip implanted in their hands. The tiny chips will use near-field communication technology to allow employees to unlock doors, boop, make vending machine purchases, you press your thing in, the, the pop comes out. Log into computers. Access office tools like photocopiers, all with a wave of the hand. They said they're not going to make it mandatory, but they expect at least half the company will probably go for it when this article came out. By the way, here's a picture of the RFID chip implant. 
they've been putting these in pets for a long time. They've started putting them in humans in some cases on a voluntary basis. But, I mean, my dog's had one of these in for a decade. If he, it's kind of nice if he gets lost. I don't know if they just take him to Kroger and just scan him across the... <laughs> I don't know how they read it. I'm sure like the shelters have it. But it's got all this information. Pet tracker chips. How about this article from a few years back in the Wall Street Journal? The title is, India launches project to ID 1.2 billion people. India's vaunted tech savvy is being put to the test this week as the country embarks on a daunting mission, assigning a unique 12-digit number to each of its 1.2 billion people. This project, which seeks to collect fingerprint and iris scans from all residents and store them in a massive central database of unique IDs, is considered by many specialists, the most technologically and logistically complex national ID effort ever attempted. Officials say early data already show how unique IDs could reduce corruption at the state's 43,000 ration shops, which distribute subsidized food to the poor. At one shop, records showed rations were being delivered to 330 families, but after the IDs were rolled out, only 203 families claimed benefits by placing their finger on a scanner at the shop. Why was that? State officials suspect the shop owner had been making up fake accounts to divert some of the food into the black market. Yeah, it's theft. It's theft. This would be great for stopping identity theft. Somebody t steals your credit cards. They rack up a bunch of charges. Right now, the banks pay that back. You're not stuck with that. But, you know, in the future, could you envision a scenario where they say, we're only going to pay that back if you get this chip implanted if you agree to our highest security levels. Otherwise, you're on your own if your stuff gets stolen, your credit card gets stolen. One resident, whose name I can't pronounce, a 35-year-old who earns $50 a month in a local government job said he isn't concerned about privacy. He just hopes the ID will help him open a bank account and get a driver's license, which he has had difficulty obtaining thus far, and maintain his benefits when he goes out of state for work. This will help me prove my identity wherever I roam, he says. Can you imagine a society where this is where our money resides? Where if your chip is denied, you can't buy things? You can't get what you need to survive? Scripture says the Antichrist will have this power. How crazy that... Thousands of years before the technology was even dreamed up, the Bible's predicting this stuff was going to happen. Can you believe that? He persecutes believers in God. Daniel said this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. It's repeated in multiple places. This is what this guy does. Speaking out against the Most High, wearing down the saints of the Highest One, he'll intend to make alterations in times and in law. Yeah, this sort of carries the sense it's not some super sudden thing but sort of a gradual grinding change, maybe propaganda, brainwashing, fake news, you know, the sorts of things that slowly shift the way people view things. A little change here, a little change in a, a religious calendar here, a law here, wearing down the people of God. This is something that uh, so socialist, uh, atheist countries, for example, have been doing for a long time. Communist countries. The former USSR was explicitly atheistic in the late 20s. 
They created the League of Militant Atheists, which had the explicit, decades-long, governmentally-supported mandate of destroying religion. How'd they do it? Disseminating atheistic propaganda and education, replacing religious rituals with secular holidays, uh, and holidays with secular versions. It was a decades-long wearing down. Simultaneously, the Soviets attempted to eradicate religion by arresting, torturing, and killing religious leaders. The Antichrist will claim to be God. Will claim to be God. You know, these boastful words, especially in the presence of God Almighty, that's, that sort of implies this right here. It says it more explicitly in other places. This is probably what's involved in this, this act of desecration in the temple. He'll set up an abomination that causes desolation, according to Daniel 9, according to Jesus as well. Takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. That's a statement from the Apostle Paul in an epistle. This is not apocalyptic literature anymore, 2 Thess 2. This is just a straight statement of fact. And this is something that dictators commonly do. Rulers will commonly do. For example, here's uh, the deification of Kim Jong-il through control of information. North Korean Ministry of Information claimed that he had 11 holes in one in the first time he ever played golf. <laughs> He's a great bowler too, by the way. He bowled a perfect 300 the first time he tried the game of bowling. <laughs> Did you know he invented the hamburger in 2004? <laughs> the state-run newspaper called the invention Googie Yeop Bang. <laughs> which is Korean for double bread with meat. <laughs> he does not defecate or urinate. Did you know that? Have you guys seen the interview with, with James Franco? There's a scene in there where they feature this right here. Um, but here's one North Korean defector says, I was convinced as we all were that he never urinated or defecated. Who could imagine such things of God's? She's talking in hindsight since she's left North Korea now, about the perspective of someone living under that regime. He made his father's Yushe ideology a state religion, deifying his father. And if you're a defector from that religion, you're a traitor and you're punished by the state. Setting himself up as God, punishing anyone who refuses to worship. And I'm not saying he's the Antichrist. He can't be. He's dead. Kim Jong-il. But you can see where this is possible. This is very possible. And our technology today is only going to make this even more possible than it would have been way back when these predictions were made. He lives in a day when Israel has been regathered into her nation, has a functioning temple. We just don't have time for this tonight. We're going to cover that two weeks from now, probably. He launches the final world war, a war so ferocious that unless it was brought to an end by God himself, it would wipe out all life as we know it. A thought that would have been preposterous back then. Today, that's a very real possibility with nuclear weapons. We don't have time for this tonight either. We're getting to that in two weeks. What we do have time for is this final point, which is that God brings an end to human history as we know it during the reign of the Antichrist. And this is what Daniel tells us in this part of the vision that I skipped. 
I love this vision. He says, I watched his thrones were put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. Finally, divine justice by the most powerful one of all. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool for his purity, his righteousness. He sat on a fiery throne with, ble- with wheels of blazing fire. A river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. And then the court began its session and the books were open. He calls the court to order. (coughs) Out comes the little horn, the Antichrist. I continue to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. He's still uttering boasts and shaking his fist right into the very presence of God. And I kept watching until that fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire, brought to an end by God. And then who's going to replace the little horn as the world ruler? A different guy. My vision continued. And I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus' favorite title for himself. Jesus quotes this about himself, you know. He's ushered in. The only one who's fit to rule the world. He approached the ancient one. He was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and language and nation would obey him. He's going to have gathered people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, Revelation says. Truly a multicultural community of people who have relationship with him already. His rule is eternal. It will never end. We're never going to have to worry about who comes next. No term limits. His kingdom will never, ever be destroyed. This is the perfect ruler, the perfect justice, the perfect government that we're always longing for and we're so disappointed by what is. God says there's a reason why you long for that. It's because he has put eternity in our hearts. He's given you a longing for the place where this is all headed. And the question is, will you get to be a part of it or not? What are we to do? Realize the Bible prophecy is for real. This is real stuff. This is not fortune tellers and tarot card readers and vague horoscopes. This is clear. This is correlated. This is amazing. You need to be ready for the kingdom of God. Will you be on the right side when when the Christ shows up? Will you have a relationship with him? Will he have paid for your sins by then? Because he says, whoever comes to me, I will never turn away, and I will protect them, and I will bring them in to my Father's house. Have you brought your heart under the leadership of the true king? That's what you can do right now. And that is Daniel 7 and the Antichrist. All right. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, the, um, we see the events in this world. It makes us realize how, how weak we are and how overwhelming it seems at times. Thankful that you're not weak or overwhelmed. You're not surprised. 
you told us all these things in advance because you wanted us to know some things about you, some things about your rescue plan. You wanted us to trust you, God. I pray that studying these would lead some of us here to trust you for the first time ever and that it would set them on a lifetime of trusting you. I pray that we would learn to take our anxieties and bring them to you and remember that you are the Ancient of Days and you've, you know exactly when you're going to bring all this to an end and it's going to be real soon, Lord, before we're standing before you. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.